and welcome to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics and break down the biggest games. I'm hopeless, lifelong Arsenal supporter Patrick Duffy, and I'm joined by Coach Rodrigo Plaza. Listener, this week we are going to run through highlights of all the games. After that, we're going to go a bit deeper on two of those games in our match-slash-matches of the week. Uh, and then we'll wrap up the show with some predictions. Uh, Rodrigo, how's coaching going for you? How's your week? How are things out on the West Coast? Thanks, Duffy. Uh, you know, things are going going well. It's getting a little bit colder over here. Uh, and having come from the East Coast so recently, I thought that this would be nothing. But I've immediately gone back to my old ways. I'm wearing five layers. It's still like 65 out. Uh, but coaching is going really well. Uh, you know, COVID's always been a difficult thing to work around, but got four teams up and running now wearing ma- masks constantly while we play, uh, which you would think is a, is a burden or most parents would think is a burden, but the kids, let me tell you, they don't even really notice. <laughs> um, so it's been great. It's been great. How about you, Duffy? How is, uh, <clears throat> the hopeless life of an Arsenal fan, uh, after match week eight? Well, we're going to hop right into our highlights, listener, on that <laughs> note. Um, it's, it's very bleak. It is extremely bleak. I don't think I could have scripted a worse outcome weekend for myself as an Arsenal supporter. Um, but or, we're going to go right into the games. I'm going to try to go through Arsenal quickly so we can get on to other stuff that will make me hopefully less sad. But Arsenal did fall this weekend 3-0 to Aston Villa. An own goal from Saka in the first half and then... Two strikes from Ollie Watkins in three minutes apart late in the second half was the difference. This was a disgraceful game. I think maybe Arteta's worst game in charge. Uh, I think you, you could maybe in your head as an Arsenal fan say if Thomas Partey doesn't get hurt, Arsenal maybe hang on to get a point. I, there were some chances for Arsenal. I have to say Lacazette and Willian. Right now, if they never played for Arsenal ever again, I would have absolutely no problem with that. They were god-awful, and they've been god-awful. And it's coming at the cost of Aubameyang sitting out on the right-hand side doing jack shit and like not having the opportunity to really get involved in the game. I'm disgusted by this team. Um, only teams in the Premier League with less goals than Arsenal this season, Wolves, Fulham, West Brom, Burnley, and Sheffield. That's a murderer's row of... Oh. attacking incompetence. So I, I'm grossed out. The only thing that is getting me through these dark days, listener, is the thought of Gabrielle Martinelli coming back from injury. The beautiful 19-year-old Brazilian, our only hope. <laughs> but really, it's just, it's dark days. It's dark days. Dark days. Yeah, I, I got to, you know, my one piece on that, you know, Arsenal definitely struggled on both sides of the ball in that game. Defensively, were a little bit in shambles. I saw one Stunk. play with uh with Grealish and uh and our our old Chelsea man what's his name Charles uh, Charles Barkley <laughs> Ross, Ross Barkley. Barkley I might as well have been Charles Barkley just tripping up the defense on the left hand side literally for a good 10 minutes before they crossed a ball into the back of the box for that soccer goal um definitely struggled there some missed opportunities sadness 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 
Uh, on the other hand, our Tottenham West Brom game uh, was, I think, like a, a dagger through the heart for West Brom, who really, really tried to work to win this, or at least come out with a draw. Um, in the first 12 minutes of the game, Sun misses a sitter inside of the 18. He essentially has passed the ball, this acrobatic move by um, Ndombele, uh, who somehow is able to, like, essentially, I think it's two touches, but he essentially volleys the ball over. Sun brings it down. Can't make up his mind. Makes it up. To, makes his mind too late. It's deflected over the goal. Should have been an easy goal, I think, by most people's account. Uh, then you know, honestly, Tottenham does not play their best game. Uh, there's a 71-minute save by Lloris, uh, Lloris, who has just just beautiful reaction save off of a flicked header in the near post. I think West Brom was pretty sure that was going to be their goal and and try to hold on to the lead there, but unfortunately, it didn't didn't quite go. Excellent goalkeeping there. I mean, just I mean, honestly, an amazing reaction save. Love to see it. And then in the 88th minute, Kane comes through for Tottenham. Um, Doherty lofts this beautiful ball over the top from the right-hand side, and it's dropping in, like, essentially on the line of the six. And Kane is kind of essentially facing the wrong direction, maybe slightly askew towards the sideline, and gets this just kind of wonder flick that puts it over to the other opposite side corner, and they get the goal and hold on. Um, you know, even the last few minutes of the game, you could see they were just sending the ball out of the back line. I mean, there was no out, you know, there was this wasn't a, a confident win by any uh, account, I don't think, um, but it was a win all the same, and they come away with the three points um you know Kane does what he does best uh even if it is with two minutes left in the game I have to say coming it's cruel of you to go right into the Tottenham game after we're talking about the debacle of an Arsenal performance you just see Tottenham struggle against a low block teams that put it out it didn't really seem like Tottenham got up for this game and now the rumor mill is spinning saying that Christian Eriksen might be coming back for Spurs to give him a little more creativity, interesting pickup, um, disgusting win, classic Harry Kane goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, our next game gonna go into is Southampton two, Newcastle zero. Southampton kind of bookmarked this game with goals right at the beginning and right at the end. Um, che Adams with a strike to get them going in the seventh minute, and then Stuart Armstrong finished off the game in the eighty second with a really nice goal on the back of a really nice performance. He, I think James Ward-Prowse gets a lot of love in the Southampton midfield, as he deserves. But Stuart Armstrong is such a workhorse alongside him. And I think the two of them in tandem, they look kind of similar. They're like these blonde guys who just play really hard and play really aggressive to win the ball back. But it's really fun to watch them play. I think my tactical notes in thinking about this game – Southampton are so good at like suddenly slowing the game down and drawing Newcastle into the game and kind of letting Newcastle think that they're going to be able to press and win the ball and then snapping into transition into the attack. It's really beautiful to watch. The, the Southampton midfielders make these really nice diagonal runs through the middle of the field, um, and it's, it's great. I'm very, very rapidly becoming a huge Southampton fan. Um, on the other side of the ball... Newcastle stinks. St. Maxima is the only player on that team who can really create much for them moving forward. And then when a team negates him, there's not much going on. The, the other thing that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough with Newcastle, Maddie and Sean Longstaff are brothers, and they play on the same team in the Premier League. Like, what are the odds of that? That's I had nuts. no idea. It never gets talked about. Like, mm. I never hear people talking about that. 
Maybe and they, they both maybe they hate each other or something. <laughs> <laughs> they both stink. I'm like, how do you get they're two brothers so in the Premier League <laughs> and on the same team and they're both bad? What Collusion. are the odds that that worked out? Collusion. Uh, <laughs> yes. Stop the count. <laughs> Stop um, the count. <laughs> yeah, good win for Southampton. They move up to fourth place, though. They're they're a force. Yeah, Southampton, easily one of my favorite teams to watch in the Premier League uh, this year. Uh, couldn't agree more with you. My love for them started early, and it's it's burning bright, but I don't. I wouldn't say it's burning fast. It's taking its time. I think I might be able to go the whole season a Southampton fan. Um, in our next game, uh, Leicester 1, Wolves 0. You know, I hate to call soccer games boring because I just feel like I heard that a lot as a kid, and I was like, shut up. Soccer's not boring. You're an idiot. But I would go ahead and call this game a little dry. Uh Wolves, uh, interestingly, in this game, I think it was probably smart uh, given who they were playing, but they decided to play a much lower block than they have in any other games. They were not looking to possess the ball, certainly looking for the counter. But that said, I can only imagine they were looking for the counter because I think they literally had less... I think their expected goals for this game was just over 0.5. They really struggled to create in this game. Now, Leicester comes away with a higher expected goals of two, but that's because they got two penalty kicks in this game. The first penalty kick comes in the 13th minute. Uh, Vardy, of course, slots it away. Um, This is kind of, I don't know if I'd call it controversial, but it, it, it is illustrating what I think many would feel is the most, you know, some of the controversial handball rules that we've been seeing. especially inside the box. So there's a handball here. It's a driven ball into a Wolves defender who's running inside the 18, just on the edge of it, to try to, like, get in the way of the cross. Hard, hard, I'd say this harsh situation, or harsh call against a defender in that situation. Um, I mean, natural running motion, sense of urgency, the way the ball is hit so hard, seems like a pretty difficult situation to not have made a, that that same exact error um, by any other player. So, difficult situation for them. Vardy puts it away. 38th minute, there's another PK, but Vardy misses this one. Um, it, this is actually kind of a nice play in some sense. Johnny Evans is in the back, way in the back line, essentially past half field. Um, they're teasing the ball around, and he decides to send one long over the top. Um, the ball comes over the top, of Ryan Aitnori. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, but he's that's the left right. he's the left he's the left wing back for for for, for Wolves in this yeah. game. And he, he Ryan is able to get a touch on the ball, but ends up kind of touching it up into the air and central into the box. James Justin makes a run around his right and before he can essentially get the second touch on the ball, gets in the way. Interestingly enough, Ryan also tries to swing to kick the ball out back towards his own goal, which makes the whole thing look pretty bad. Cleans, cleans James Justin. There's another PK. Vardy boosts this one, though. Sends it right up the middle. Keeper goes right, but is able to block it with his feet, despite you know the early decision to mm. go. So, like I said, I think this, the biggest takeaway from this game is Wolves try to play a little more conservatively, probably because they know that Vardy is a powerhouse and Leicester is willing to go on the counter any, any time. Um, but it pretty much blows up in their face. They don't create much of anything in terms of chances. Um, and like I said, Leicester does come away with a much larger expected goals, but I think mostly just because they got a couple PKs, um, which, of course, you would expect to score. Um, so pretty dry game, all told. And I got to say, I don't think things are looking particularly good for Wolves. Yeah. I, on that note, I feel like we should do a deep dive on Wolves' hexics this season 
because I think they were playing with a real clear identity and style in the past couple of years. And it's like, I watch them game to game and I'm like, I have no idea what they're doing. Like, I don't, I don't have any sense whatsoever. And I can't tell if it's like all of these new players coming in and it's just taking some time for the squad to gel and like, you know, get some cohesion. They lost a lot of guys. They're picking up new guys, but it also seems like, ta- yeah, tactically they're just all over the place. So I think that's one to put in the down the road file for us, um, for sure. Absolutely. Looking backwards instead of looking forwards, <laughs> Burnley, Brighton, 0-0. I swear I've seen this game before, except it was Arsenal-Burnley, and it was like three years ago, because Danny Welbeck is back for Burnley. I should call him Danny Welbeck. Um, he <laughs> was up to his usual stuff in this game, as he did like time and time again at Arsenal. He just made great runs. He had amazing position and would just like, he, he just is allergic to scoring goals. When it comes to his finishing in front of the net, he had three or four chances in this game that, yeah, like there was good play from the Burnley goalkeeper. Yeah, they would have been tough chances to finish, but like one of those, he has to slot them away. I've just seen this when he played at Arsenal. I used to see this time and time again. I love Danny Welbeck. He seems like such a good teammate, such a great guy. Like he's so positive. He really fights for his club. But man, you got to score. Um, Burnley had, I think, really only one shot on target in the whole game. They're really just trying to play to spring the counter against Brighton, which I think was smart. But that squad just it is so lacking in quality in terms of service to get the ball up to the front that, yeah, they, they, they struggle going forward in any sense of the word. They defended really well, um, and that's kind of what they needed to do to get the point in this game. But, yeah, Lesser Wolves, Burnley, Brighton, these were two not very good games. Mm-hmm. Bur- Brighton is just, they attack really well. But, yeah, when Welbeck is the guy who you're trying to have score goals, I'm sorry, my friends, it's just, it's not really going to happen for you. Yeah, speaking of boring games, the next game actually was worth was worth the wait. Crystal Palace leads. So this game ends Crystal Palace 4 leads 1. Now despite the scoreline, let me tell you that this game felt close for a very very long time. Um, leads comes out in this game and honestly misses three or four chances kind of early on. They even have a goal called back, which I'll mention a little bit more in depth in a second. Um, Bamford just kind of, again, struggles to put away a few chances here and there that, you know, I mean, you see it happen for other teams missing these opportunities, but the way that Leeds plays, especially given that they tend to work very hard and occasionally get scored on, they need to score these goals in order to stay in these games. And when you're yeah. missing those opportunities, that that's the game. So, you know, it's hard to blame all of us on Bamford, but at the same time, you know, the style of play that they're playing, the 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 way they lean on being a high scoring team, this the, those are the chances that really count. So the first goal of this game comes in twelve comes in the twelfth minute. Uh it's a Scott Dan header uh from Crystal Palace. Um it's for Eze goes to take this uh, corner kick, slots it in beautifully. Scott Dan gets up in the air, heads it, but it kind of gets pinched between him and another Leeds defender. Uh, goes in, you know, kind of off between both of their heads, hits the crossbar, goes in. Kind of a beautiful goal in, in its way. Um, just a few minutes later, uh, Bamford scores a goal from this one-touch shot off a through ball, and it's called back. Um Oof. Ailing sends a ball to click on the on the 18, who kind of shields, turns, and then passes it immediately to Banford, who meets it, touches it, cross. I mean, to touch 
one-touch shot scores. Um, they call it back because his arm is offsides, right? Because there's a part of his arm, I guess, he could use to score uh, somewhere around below, I mean, above his elbow. And that is the part of his body that's offsides. I was complete BS to me. But all the same, they call back the goal. Like I said, it feels close all the same. 21 minutes, so five minutes later, Eze gets a free kick, an absolute stunner. Hits it from left side, right outside the 18, hits the upper 90 crossbar and pings in. Eze sends gems this entire game. I think he's named man of the match in the end, but absolutely beautiful free kick. Uh, 26 minutes in, Bamford finally gets his goal. There's this actually really nice ball into Click. Uh, who receives it kind of facing the wrong direction, and he's being challenged. And so he kind of headers it back into the 18 at an angle. And we kind of mentioned this in our last episode, but those kind of shadow runs, overlaps coming into the box. Well, there's Banford making this kind of overlap run into the center, gets the ball. He ends up getting chests it down and volleys it left side. I mean, beautiful. If he could do that with all the chances that he had gotten in this game, not only would he have looked godly, but they would have won it, I'm telling you right now. Um, 42nd minute, this is what really is the dagger in the heart, I think, for Leeds. There's an own goal by Helder Costa. It's kind of a weird goal. Patrick Van Unholt uh, crosses on the ground. It deflects off Costa pretty early, but just rolls in the first post. It, by some accounts, I feel like the keeper really should have been able to get to it because it's not a particularly hard shot after it takes the deflection. But, you know, sometimes those things are just enough to throw you off and it goes in 3-1. At that point, you know, it definitely feels like maybe this game is out of reach in terms of number of goals. But still, Leeds has had their chances and they continue to kind of make some. Um, but then in the 70 minute as a gold by IU to put it up 4-1. It was honestly kind of bad defending by Leeds. They allow, they allow this run into the back post, um, and he's kept on because one of the central defenders is kind of sitting deeper on the PK spot. And if he had stepped up, he would have been offsides, or if he'd pushed out to cover the mark of the guy coming in, that would have been also able to keep it, but unfortunately he doesn't. So, all said, a lot of goals in this game. An exciting game to watch. It's unfortunate you if you know the scoreline beforehand because you're not going to keep the hope the way that you do when you watch it live. But mm. a good game. Honestly, don't count out leads. Um, at halftime, Tim Howard had the gall to say that leads had been figured out, which was the most bizarre thing given that the goals that had been scored at that point were an own goal and two set pieces. Uh, so... Figured out what exactly. Um, but anyways, moving right along, a good game if you want to go see some sweet goals. I think Leeds needs to replace Meslier, their goalkeeper. I think that's probably... I think you could maybe argue three of those goals at, at the extreme, but certainly two of them he could have had a hand to save. Mm-hmm. Eze's great. He's such a good ad for them. And Patrick Van Onhal coming back from injury is really key for Crystal Palace. I think... He'll have he had a good good impact on this game, and I think he'll continue to do that for them moving forward. Uh, West Ham one, Fulham zero. This this was a tragic game for Fulham. I really I feel very bad for them. Uh, they played really well throughout the whole game. It was very very back and forth, really cagey. I think a lot of what um, Fulham wanted to do tactically was to shut down Suchek. He'd really, he's really played well, I think, to start the season for West Ham. And it seemed like in the midfield and and the defenders, they were really selling out on Suchek and Declan Rice to disrupt the midfield play for West Ham. And that was super effective. West Ham definitely had more chances, but they kind of came in bursts and it felt like Fulham like 
kind of would give them a few chances all right back to back. So the numbers look really good for West Ham, but I thought Fulham played a very solid game and were looking to hit West Ham on the counter out of coming out of transition. And I thought they were transitioning really well. They just didn't really have the final ball. Um, their, their, their attackers up front, Lookman and I think it's De Cordova, De Cordeva. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how to say his name. Both of them had their, had their opportunities um, but just weren't really able to confer, weren't really to get able to get the final pass. Um, and then in injury time, uh, Ben Rama, the new pickup for West Ham, he has the ball in the box. West Ham just has a lot of touches in the in Fulham's 18 and taps it over to Suchek, who scores. And Suchek had not had any of the ball, so the goal from him is like kind of out of nowhere. Um, but West Ham had been knocking on the door. But then Fulham come back down on the other side and are attacking, and there's a penalty called. It, it, it wasn't originally called, and it went to VAR. And to be honest with you, when, when I was watching it live, I was like, there's no way that's a penalty. And then when I was watching it, it did seem like he, he tripped him up. I just always have a hard time with these kind of penalties because I feel like, yes, he did trip him, but the ball was already cleared, and there's no chance that he was going to get it. Like. Mm. The, the Fulham player, I don't remember who it is, but he kicked the ball like five yards ahead of him straight to a West Ham defender and goes down. It's like, I don't, I don't, I have a hard time seeing how that would have led to a goal scoring opportunity, but it's called and it is a penalty. The, the letter of the law, I think it's fair to say. And then Lookman comes up to the spot and he just all time choke job on the penalty kick. He like tries to just chip it over the keeper and chips it. He like mishits it and hits it like with the least pace you possibly could. And Fabianski goes the wrong way, but it's kind of still able to get it because he's like, Ugh, it, it's moving it. so slowly. Overthought it. Overthought it. I felt so bad. The announcers were saying like, oh, he's going to get a, a dressing down in the dressing room or, you know, whatever. And I was like, dude, like, he, come on, you know, like you make a mistake <laughs> like that. I'm not yeah. really going to beat, beat you up. Um, the, the one note I had out of this game, though, is Anthony Robinson, the American defender who's playing left back, he had a great game. Um, he's really nice going forward. He had some really nice interplay on the left-hand side and attacking. He had some mistakes defensively, but he, like, recovered really well. I thought it was a good performance and excited to see him develop for U.S. men's national team. Absolutely. It's always good to see American players who are starting to find their legs in some of the more, uh, in, in the premier leagues uh, around the world. Um, but moving on to our, our next game, Manchester United versus Everton. This was kind of an exciting one, I think, at least in preparation. I think everybody thought there could be fireworks here. The final score is Manchester United 3, Everton 1. Uh, this comes to you essentially with a Bruno uh, brace uh, and a late a late game Cavani goal uh, with I think eight minutes of play under his belt. Um, so the first the first goal uh, comes in the 19th minute. Uh, for Everton, they actually score first and go up 1-0 here. There's a long ball actually sent by Pickford uh, to uh, Calvert-Lewin, who gets a little flick on it uh, over to the left side. Bernard brings it down, uh, essentially right outside the 18, and then ends up taking a shot, 
Megging Wambasaka for the near post. Um, it's a nice shot. I think he gets a little lucky, perhaps, that it goes through his legs and isn't blocked. But still, you know, shoot or shoot. So gets his goal up 1-0. Uh, about five, six minutes later, Bruno Fernandez scores to tie the game. Um, this was this was actually a really kind of a nice goal. There's some good combination play centrally, and then they get the ball out to the left for Shaw. He cues up this cross, and Bruno just flies out of nowhere um, and essentially meets the ball with his head at the penalty spot, smashes it in. Now, I think you're going to see this a little later, and I think you see this actually a, a, a bit in the game in general. The, defend, the defenders on Everton do not do a good job of closing the space centrally on the air balls that are coming in. Um, so if Bruno Fernandes is winning them in the air, I mean, that's, that's probably sign enough that somebody should be doing something about that. But all the same, a nice goal, well put together. Uh, just another, essentially seven minutes later, Bruno Fernandez scores another one, although for the moment you would think it was Rashford. Uh, there's a ball that gets swung around the back, and they end up going central to Wambasaka, uh, from, from Aaron Wambasaka. Um, Rashford receives it, passes wide to Bruno on the left, who crosses it into the box, and then Rashford runs in, essentially to a very similar kind of position uh, that Bruno met the ball at. But this cross is less of a dagger and a little bit more of a floater. And he gets very close to the ball with the head, but it's hard to tell whether he touches it. Replay will show that I don't think he does. And it ends up dropping, bouncing, hitting the back post and going in. So a beautiful sent ball by Bruno that could have been a header, but was just a little too high for Rashford. Um, and he's only able to, to, to pretend he's had it for at least the first few seconds of the goal. Um, so they go up there 2-1. The rest of the first half, Everton looks a little muted. I'm not really sure what happens, but they don't have the same kind of attacking prowess that they did even in the first 10 minutes of the game. Um, then late, late, late. 94th minute, Cavani comes up with a third goal, making it 3-1. I think by many people's accounts, this game really ends 2-1. Um, the, way that, the way that it happens, Everton is going pretty hard in the last seconds of the game to try to score one. Um, Everton sends the ball high, and there's a cross to Decore, who just whiffs the ball. Um, and he actually whiffs a couple opportunities like this during the game. Balls are coming into the box that he's running onto and just doesn't make good contact with it or misses it entirely. But unfortunately, once he misses it, pops out. Maguire gets a toe on it, and it pokes it to Bruno, who's all alone in the center of the field. Bruno runs straight to the central defender, draws the, draws the defenders to him, passes the ball, flicks the ball off left into the 18, and there's Cavani, one-on-one with the keeper. He goes near post, which, you know, some, you know, I'm sure goalkeeper coaches out there are going to, you know, rag on Pickford for not being at the first post like he should always be. But at this point, it's the 94th minute, 1v1 with the keeper. I don't know that that game is anywhere to be saved. At, for sure. Anyways, he slots it home, winning me some nice fantasy points that I didn't deserve, uh, and the game ends 3-1. I think my, my only take on this game is that Manchester United looked better in this game. Granted, uh, I don't know that Everton played great defensively, but the things I noticed in this game that they were doing very well was that they were sending more balls into the box, right? What we heard early on from Manchester United was a team that was struggling to get the ball wide, getting into 2v2s they couldn't break down, trying to run into the center of the 18 and take shots that were getting deflected. What we're seeing now is a better ability to win the ball into those wide spaces, more frequency of the cross into the box. And now we've got people, Bruno, Rashford, who are running in to meet the ball. And honestly, that gives them a new piece of leverage to try to be, you know, uh, a, a dangerous team. And I think that having that, in addition to the speed that they have on the counter, that could be enough to sc score a lot of goals. Question is whether they'll be able to do it against maybe some other sides that are going to play a little bit better on defense. So, you know, here's, here's to that. We'll see. Um, and the last thing I'll mention about Everton, 
Calvert-Lewin, he remains a threat. That dude, he remains a threat. Even in this game, the, every time the ball goes through him, he's making something happen. A little flick off, a little, a little a shot. He has a, a nice header uh, that he, he isn't able to score on, but some high-difficulty situations he's able to make something out of. Um, so good on him, but unfortunately, they come away with the L. It, I think for United, I thought the same thing. They're doing a much better job getting balls in the box. Bruno, in some games, when he's frustrated, he tries to play into the game by sitting really deep and winning the ball back deep, and he didn't do that this game. Like He's involved in both of the, the two early goals because he's so high up on the field. Yes, that's I a think, good point. I think their ability to play better on the wings and get balls in is maybe more a reflection of Everton just not being able to defend very well on the wings. Um, and I also think my hot take on Decore is he was – good at Wofford, but I think he's the kind of player who did well on a bad team, so people overvalue what he actually looks like, but when he's expected to perform on a good team, and and I haven't really seen a whole lot from him to be all that impressed by this season. Like, I think Allen is playing a similar role as him, and, and it's just looked much better. I also had a question for Everton. Did Hamas Rodriguez play in this game? <laughs> I like yes. Saw his name on the team sheet, and I know he was in the starting eleven. But I, I this is the thing with Hamas is like he's really good, and then he goes invisible. And he did this in Madrid, and like I, I kind of had a feeling in the back of my head that this would happen with him. There's just games where it's like, like he gets shut down by Fred in this game. Who I, like Fred has some ability. I'm not saying he's a bad player, but Hamas Rodriguez should be beating Fred and should be outshining Fred. Like. I don't think that those two players should be on the same level. But, yeah, um, credit to United. This is a, that's a really quality win. Everton fraud team. They're the fraud team this year, like, for sure. <laughs> um, on that note, listener, we are going to take a quick break and come back to talk about our last two games a little bit more in depth in our matches of the week. Okay, welcome back. We are going to hop into matches of the week. Listener, this is going to be time when we're going to go a little bit more in depth into the games, breaking them down, but also trying to give a little bit more of the sense of tactics and how we're feeling about the clubs that we're involved in general. So I'm going to kick it to Rodrigo to kick us to maybe a surprising one, but I think two teams that we wanted to talk about a little bit more in Chelsea and Sheffield United. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do think that this was one I, I didn't I wouldn't have picked right uh, before the weekend started as a as a as a as a probable uh, match of the week. But Chelsea uh, wins this game for Sheffield one. Um, let's just run through the, the highlights of the game quickly and then let's get into the into the into the nitty gritty. So first goal comes actually for Sheffield early, which is another gift from God for Sheffield, because if there's anything that they like to do or that they need to do in order to win a game, it's score early. Nine minutes into the game, McGoldrick, again, this guy who's essentially begun dry with goals uh, like the entire last season scores. Um, it's a it's kind of a cheeky corner that they run. It's a short pass on the on 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 the corner from the right hand side then they overlap they pass the ball to the guy overlapping but then the overlap guy passes it back to the guy who received it short and when he passes it back it's now in a nice little crossing position from the right hand side nobody really there to block the cross um and he ends up sending this hard 
ball on the ground, kind of back to the top of the 18 to Sander Verge. Uh, and Sander Verge then makes a nice one-touch pass to McGoldrick, who gets his little heel tap in, uh, and 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 it's it's honestly a pretty pretty spicy goal, um, and I was kind of excited for them. Uh, Sheffield goes up early, things are looking nice. Uh, that said, Ziek is starting in this game, and if you've heard anything that I've had to say about Ziek or, Ziek or have been a part of my uh, the soccer group chat that I'm on, you know how my feelings are about him. He absolutely takes this game over. In the 23rd minute, uh, Tammy Abraham scores a goal, tying it at 1-1. Ziek is far on the right-hand sideline, plays this ball over the top to Kovacic, who's making a run kind of into the 18. Now, Kovacic was kind of able to bring it down and get under control right before he gets to the touch line. Makes a 180 turn and puts it back to Tammy Abraham, who's running into the top of the 18. Now, Tammy doesn't hit this perfectly. It kind of comes off of his foot, bounces on the ground, but he gets enough of, gets enough of his foot on it to put it left-hand side with the bounce, kind of bringing it, slotting it left-hand side. It's tied 1-1. Now, granted, it was an amazing effort by Kovacic to, I think, get that 180 turn, know that Tammy was coming, and put the ball there. But all that starts with a beautiful ball over the top from Zeke, and that is just the beginning of the balls he's going to send in this game. 30 minutes into the game, Zeke gets a free kick from the right-hand side. He sends this dagger of a ball with a lot of whip to the back left-hand side. It's deflected by the keeper, but Werner is there uh, to, to, get, to pick up the scraps, and he hits a laser off the woodwork that goes deflecting off to the right-hand side. No goal there, but honestly, kind of this exciting, exciting ball and an exciting hit as well. Four minutes later... Uh, Zeke essentially sends an identical ball. There's a corner kick from the right-hand side again that instead of sending into the box, they send back out to Zeke, who's once again kind of deep, 30 yards out from the goal on the right-hand side. He whips another ball in left-footed, goes to the back post, but this one's a little tighter, as if it's going to go into the goal all by itself. As it's coming down, you see that it's going to land maybe a foot wide of the left-hand post, and Chilwell is running in as the keeper is coming out Chilwell almost seems to kind of divert his direction to avoid the keeper, ends up hitting the ball with his hip, and it goes into the goal. Again, a beautiful ball by Zeke that literally just needed someone to touch it with whatever body part they could uh, to put it into the goal, um, and Chelsea's able to go up 2-1. Now, uh, there's a little bit of a, of a break here without goals, but then in the 76th minute, Thiago Silva scores a goal, 3-1. Lo and behold, Ziyech calls Reese James off of a free kick from the right-hand corner, essentially a corner kick if, you, if you're thinking about it practically. He whips mm-hmm. this in hard right out front of the right, – like essentially right outside of the six. Now, if you watch the play in the box, uh, Tiago Silva starts essentially lined up next to Tammy – um, but he makes a run around Tammy that kind of screens his defender off of him and then makes the run to the front of the six, meets the ball there beautifully, smashes it in, blazing goal, goes up 3-1, um, and, and that seems like it might be the game right there. Two minutes later, Zig is able to get the ball deeper in his own half. And instead of trying to send a nice whipped curve ball or something, you know, like he's been doing, he sends this one directly through the center to a Timo Werner who's making a run. This is the kind of play that I expected to see if you have Timo, Timo Werner starting as that central holding, I mean, that's that central target forward. But, you know, he's coming in off the left here, meets the ball and gets a one-on-one with the keeper. He tries to chip the keeper 
and just misses a little bit wide. He says that the, te- the the keeper deflects it, but it's clearly not. It goes over. I think it might even touch the right post before it kind of dings out uh, out of bounds. But Werner, not to be stopped, in the 80th minute, two minutes later, gets his goal. Um, there's this bad kind of Sheffield deflection, like a, like a quarter way up the field, um, that ends up being like a through ball that Werner just reads really well. He sees the deflection and says, nope, this ball is going to go back to the defensive line, meets it there, and just blasts it by Ramsdale, and they win the game 4-1. Um, you know, this game was an exciting game um, if you are a Chelsea fan. Uh, Sheffield, again, struggles to score, struggles in this game. They're absolutely glued to the bottom of the table right now. I do not know if there's any way that they can find the leverage to pry themselves off. Um, but Chelsea, on the other hand, has started to, I think, hit some of the, the, the heat that I've been kind of predicting might come along with a ZX start. So a couple things I want to note. Thing one, everybody who's playing in the attacking part of this game is extremely fluid. Tammy Abraham does kind of stay in a central role, but everybody else is kind of free to roam wherever they'd like to. So, for example, um, you start this game with Kovacic on the on the right, Mount on the left. I'm, rel- I'm regularly seeing them switch sides and or be on the same side at the same time. Timo Werner and Ziyech as well, moving kind of back and forth, although Ziyech tends to stay on the right-hand side so that when he can bring the ball, cut the ball in, he can send the through ball with his left. Now, Chilwell and Reese James as well are making overlapping runs, getting into the attack frequently. So what this means is that the core defensive shape for Chelsea is N'Golo Kante sitting in front of Kurt Zuma and Thiago Silva, essentially playing a three in the back, right? So a lot of times this game feels to me like they're playing 3-4-3, much more than 4-3-3. But the way that they make that central central four is by dropping N'Golo Kante and then bringing up the players out wide. So they have a lot of fluidity when it comes to the attack and the players that are making runs. And for me, I'm thinking this is a Ziyech, like this is, his, this is the candy shot for Ziyech because he's got the vision to see where these runs are going. He's got the technique to send a ball any which way. I mean, the balls he sends in this game are beautiful. And, that, and I didn't even mention all the ones that he sent that were, you know, potential goal-scoring opportunities. There were, there were several others. And he's also, I think, going to build over time the empathy to know who needs what. You know, Tammy needs a ball like this. Werner needs a ball like this. He's going to start to build that rapport, I think, if he gets more minutes on the field. And if that starts to happen, I really think they're going to be dangerous. Um, Now, I don't think they're just going to be dangerous because Ziyech will be there. But I think what will happen is not only will Ziyech be able to put these balls through to make them dangerous – but I think what's going to happen is you're going to start to see more opportunities for players around Zeke to make combination plays because Zeke's going to be drawing attention to himself as the playmaker. Um, and once you start to have that, things are going to start to open up, especially when you have wide players kind of flying up the side. Um, I mean, I know that, you know, no, nobody, I think, is surprised to hear that I think Zeke is like the key to these, pro- to these, to these, you know, the key to... Chelsea's future success, um, mm-hmm. but I think that this game was a statement, a true statement of intent for Ziyech. I mean, there wasn't really, I, I don't, there was probably a handful of balls that he passed that were not 
through balls, penetrating balls to players to dangerous positions. I mean, he he wasted no time doing that um, from the first minute to the last. And I'm very, very excited to see what he can do with the ball. Um, so exciting, exciting moment, I think, for Chelsea. And I have already kind of alluded to this once, but I think if they continue to keep this formation, keep Ziyech getting a starting position, keep them gelling, I think this team has what it takes to, to win the league. I do. I think that they're like my underdog pick. I know they're not much of an underdog because they're still top, you know, one of the big six or whatever. But of the teams that you maybe didn't expect to win, you know, not Liverpool, not necessarily City, although I don't necessarily feel bullish about either of them right now, um, I think I think Chelsea has it. I think Chelsea has it, and I think few people recognize that at this moment. Um, look back at the games they've been playing. They have not struggled to score. The thing that's been hard for them is to be consistent, consistent on defense, and consistently finding the same guy to score goals. And with Ziyech on the on the ball, I think I think they're going to start to see a little bit more success that way. Uh, he was amazing this game. He had six key passes, the most of any Prem player on the weekend. I, it's very clear that the offense is going to run through him. And if I'm thinking about all the weapons that Chelsea has, Havers, to me, feels like the odd man out right now. I kind of have a hard time seeing Havertz and Ziyech being on the field at the same time because I think both of them, defense is not necessarily their strong suit. So you kind of are putting out two rather vulnerable players in the midfield or in the wing. Um, so that's something I've, I'm thinking about in moving forward. And just on terms of form, like there's no way you drop Ziyech after he's putting performances out like this. That's a good um, point. Tactics, some tactical stuff I'm thinking about with Chelsea. So uh, Timo Werner, um, I looked up some of his Bundesliga stats for Leipzig. He's terrible in the air. He is. He, he only won uh, 20% of his aerial duels in his time at Leipzig. And last year in the Bundesliga, he scored zero goals off of a header, which for a striker, left winger, whatever you want to call him, yeah, yeah. that's not a lot. Um and then I was thinking about Tammy Abraham as the other player who's playing up top. And I think Tammy is, is playing a lot more in that central role and playing a lot more as like your target man. And I think in some ways he, he, he can offer some hold-up play that maybe Werner is not uh, so much there to do. So I wanted to take a little bit closer look at the two of them playing together because I loved the way that they were playing together Agreed. in this game. Agreed. Um, Frank has started them together in four Premier League games this season and they have a total of the, the Chelsea has scored 14 goals in those four games uh they don't their their lowest <laughs> goal count in any of those games was three when yeah. Werner started without Tammy that was three games and they've Chelsea scored three goals across those three games all three of the goals in that that game were scored uh two of them were scored by Werner one scored by I don't remember who else was Southampton but then the other two games were the only two games where they failed to score. So mm. I, I, I guess my point is being like, I think Werner will do better with Tammy up front with him mm. and having that target man and someone who can offer the complementary skills that he's not really necessarily bringing. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I've been kind of out on Tammy. But in this game in particular, he definitely seemed to be a, an ad. And I think it did, It took a little bit of the pressure off of Werner in that sense because he could, he could come centrally anytime he wanted to, but he didn't have to be 
both a hold-up guy when the ball was played early or a guy in the air when the ball was played in the air, right? He could, he could be those things as he, cho- as he chose to, um, which I think, is, I think that's a very good point. That's a good point. I think it's the same thing we see at Everton, right? When Richarlison is not there, it's not necessarily that Richarlison is scoring goals. It's that he's making space and he's committing defenders that other players can't. And if you're a defender, you have to sell out on Timmy Abraham. Like you can't, you you, you can't just give him space because he mm-hmm. can't. He has capability in front of goal. Um, I think you and I before the pod were talking about Frank and thinking about his tactics, and I think the the way that I've sort of come around to thinking about him is just that he's like a net neutral for Chelsea. Like he's not earning them more points than what the squad should get, but he's also not losing them points. Like we were saying Ole loses his team points. Like he figures out ways to cost United. Um, and it's amazing. Ole at the wheel. But I think Frank, like he doesn't make the idiot mistakes. That United game feels like a perfect example. Frank goes in and he's just a like, great. Like, we get the draw. Like, I didn't lose the team points in this situation. I also didn't get them points. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like he has so much quality in this side. It's sort of like, mm-hmm. go out there and play. Like, be fluid, win the ball, and score. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, I, I don't – part of me is, like, is that good tactics? That seems like just someone who doesn't really have a great tactical sense for the game. Mm-hmm. But then another part of me is, like, if I'm a player – who do I want to play for? I want to play for a manager who just has confidence in me and lets me go out there and cook. And like, you're talking about fluidity and part of me is like, is fluidity no tactics or is fluidity <laughs> like trusting your guys? And I yeah. think like yeah. it kind of cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. So I just, I view Frank as like, he's like the big friend, like cool guy and like players are happy to play for him. And cause they're happy to play for him. They're, they're going to play well cause they have a lot of talent. Um, yeah. I like your analysis of him. I think that, you know, I agree that I don't, I haven't picked up on anything that feels like a clear vision for what he's trying to do with the team. I think I maybe mentioned this before, at least in conversation, if not on the pod, but he strikes me as the kind of guy who, the way he solves the puzzle is he takes all the pieces out of the box and he just tries to see if one fits with another. And he just keeps trying different pieces. And eventually he gets a few pieces together and he's like, oh, these fit nicely, I'm going to leave them alone. And then he tries some more pieces. But he's not sitting there being like, ah, oh, these are all edge pieces, let's put them around the edge. And, oh, these pieces are the same color, let's put them together. He seems like a guy who kind of more goes about this with trial and error. And I think that the fluidity of it, um, you know, it could be something more conscious that he's make, trying to make happen. But I think it has more to do with who he's telling to, like, not do that, right? I think he essentially mm-hmm. comes in and says, N'Golo Conte, I need you to stay central so that the boys can go do their thing. And he's like, hey, you guys in the center, you know what you're doing. Work with N'Golo. And then he's like, all right, you guys, go get that thing. You know what I mean? Like, he's, he's, he's maybe picking a few people to play clear roles defensively, but kind of letting everybody else be free. And in a lot of times, good coaches at the youth, like when you have youth, the best coaches tend to do that kind of thing. They have ideas maybe a little bit more shaped uh, because they're trying to teach certain conceptual ideas. But at the end of the day, they let the kids play and the kids figure out how to play and they figure out how to play together. You know, that, that's how it works. And that's going to be true at the oldest, most elite players level as well. Um, if you have a vision and you know you got the players to do it and you can walk them through all of that, that's great. But if you don't, the worst thing you can do is try and then get in the way, 
right? And I think that that's the thing that I hate the most is coaches that get in the way. So I'm not out on Frank because he's not getting in the way, at least not as far as I can see. If he starts benching Zeke after a performance like that or like tries to play Pulisic a ton because, I don't know, he is something about Pulisic or something, then I'd be like, sure, he's getting in the way. But he doesn't seem like that kind of guy. And if anything, he's building a culture, I think, that facilitates good play. The culture is if you go out there and you have a good game, I'm going to let you play more. Yeah. It's very simple. Nobody has to guess about what they're going to get minutes and why or not. Like, if you play well, you get it. If you get hurt and you don't get minutes and someone else takes your spot in the meantime, sorry. You know, it's not like nothing I can do about it. And I think that that's a good, I think it's a very, very good approach. Um, I don't think, I think it's going to be a good, it's a good backbone for, for a culture of like who gets to play and why and what we're doing. Um, and like you said, he, they've got the quality, no doubt. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm just thinking back to previous Premier League winners and I'm like, who are the managers of those teams? And if I'm thinking in this, like, are they winning their teams? Are they adding points? Are they a net zero? Are they losing? And it's like, it's Klopp. It's Guardiola when he was good and smart. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's Claudio Ranieri. Um, it's our boy Antonio Conte. Like, I think all of those guys were very clearly at their teams, like adding a lot of value and adding a lot. And I think, I kind of feel like that can be the difference maker. And definitely can't this, be. This is that. the this is a really weird season, and it's very open this year. So it could be that you know you get kind of Fat Frank leading the way with his Chelsea squad, and, and it works. But um, I think that's why I'm hesitant to to be in on them to win because I just mm-hmm. think like yeah. He'll he'll get outclassed in some of the the bigger managerial games, like against Klopp, even against Jose. I think Jose's managed really well this year. Yeah. Um, but Agreed. yeah, co- really quality win for Chelsea, and two, they're definitely random thought experiments I want to throw at you that oh, I had okay. at the end of this game. One was imagine, okay, or compare in your mind Ziyech and Kevin De Bruyne. Can Kevin De Bruyne make the kinds of passes that Ziyech makes in this game? Definitely. Definitely. There's no way that he couldn't do if all the same things that Ziyech does in this game. Why isn't he doing that at Manchester City? Right? That, that's, that's my question. Right? Ziyech comes into this game, and I know they're playing Sheffield United, so let's not you know, get you know, too, too ahead of ourselves. But at the same time, you know... City is struggling to score in some of these games. They're tying teams like Leeds, you know? Um, yeah. Like, they're struggling to score. And you've got a playmaker that's, like, supposed to be the best playmaker, arguably, maybe in the world. Ziyech comes on the field, and I think he's a great playmaker, I do. But I, there's no part of me that feels like he can do something that's so outlandishly better than what Kevin De Bruyne can do. And yet, what's the difference in my mind? Fluidity. It's the yeah. ability of players to not be so locked into roles, to make these penetrating runs. It's the fact that Zeke's getting the ball in different parts of the field, and he's just sending balls. He's just sending them. He's not trying to do more. He's not trying to play high on the line. I, I, I want to draw attention to that because I'm, I'm, that's a piece to me. It's, like, it's not like we don't have a player that could do this on another team somewhere. So why no, isn't it happening? Right? That's a great point. That's a great point. That was one. Two, if I had to pick a player that I wanted to like upgrade for the Chelsea team, I think it's N'Golo Conte. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> and if I had to pick a player right now, uh, it, maybe, there's, maybe there's a more obvious choice, but this was the one that I thought was interesting. I think I would bring Thomas Partey. 
Yeah. And I would swap him for Mangola. If you had Thomas Partey leading that little triangle in the central defense, honestly, I think that would be extremely effective. He's strong, like effective on defense, very, very smart and aggressive, but he can get the ball and kind of either distribute it himself or get rid of it. You know, be a role player, get rid of the ball to somebody like Ziyech who can make the rest happen. So that was another thought I had. You know, those two thoughts, I think, just interesting, interesting random thoughts I had at the end of that game. May the second one never, ever, ever, ever come true. All right, well, we're going to switch gears, I think, and go into our second match of the week, which was Liverpool 1, Manchester City 1. This game, the first half of this game, absolutely electric. I rewatched it today in getting ready for the pod, and I have no regrets that I did. Second half, maybe not so much, and I think we can talk a little bit about why maybe that happened, but... Um, Liverpool, right off the bat, had a chance, hit a ball over the top to Firmino, and he just kind of a heavy touch and a good stop from um, Ederson to make sure that the ball didn't come through. It was really end-to-end from there on, like City having chances on the other side, Liverpool um, having their chances. And then in the 12th minute, uh, Mane just completely destroys Kyle Walker. Kyle Walker had a really rough first half against Sadio Mane. He was really getting put in the spin cycle. And uh, it, and it's it's called a penalty. I thought it was a bit soft. Um, the the foul, Kyle Walker trips Mane. Again, I it's it's the kind of foul like the one we talked I was talking about earlier. Um, but it's a foul. It's it's a penalty. And um, the penalty is given and uh, converted by Mo Salah to put Liverpool up. One nil. Basically, immediately after that happens, City starts pressing considerably, considerably higher up the field, um, and yeah, really trying to force the issue uh, into the Liverpool half. From then on, the game also I thought got a little bit sloppy. There were a lot of like heavy touches, a couple of missed passes that could have connected, and then City just have an amazing build up to their goal. Uh, they draw Liverpool really into the in, into their own half. Mane is rushing into the back to to try to close down. I think the center back Ruben Diaz, who gives the ball to Rodri. Rodri's in the middle of the field and he switches the ball all the way over to Kyle Walker on the right. And he's in so much space because Mane was pulled out of position trying to close down and, and press. So there's all this room on the right. And with that room, he he brings the ball into KDB in the middle and for when I was watching it live the first time was like oh he hesitated too much like KDB has the ball like at the top of the 18 basically and I he's waiting for the run in front of him and it just didn't look like it was on and I was like oh he missed his chance but then he threads the ball to Gabriel Jesus who has such a nice touch to beat Trent Alexander-Arnold in the box and and fires in a great goal score levels the score 1-1 in the 32nd minute for City um, and the game continues really at a high pace from then on. Uh, there are chances again going both ways, and then City win a penalty in the 39th minute. There's a handball on Joe Gomez, really like kind of it's similar to the one in Leicester. Mm-hmm. I thought that this was more clearly a handball. I would the, agree. The, I would agree. The Wolves defender, it felt like he was pulling his hand back into his body, and it got caught. Joe Gomez was sticking his arm out. Like I think Liverpool fans were were complaining about it at the moment, 
And I understand why it's frustrating, but at the same time, like, if it didn't hit his arm there, the ball would have gotten crossed in and it could have been scored. And his arm wasn't, like, by his side. It was out. Yeah, um, it was an awkward – it was a very awkward situation. It didn't definitely, quite – definitely didn't seem clean, like an like unintentional clean exactly. And I think it, we're at the point with VAR where it's sort of like you're a defender, you're in the box, you should put your hands behind your back. Like Eat, you, eat your arms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eat them. Uh, KDB steps up and he just boosts the penalty though. He like yeah. – di- didn't even hit the frame. He put it wide left on the ground. When I when I was watching it, it sort of looked like he hits it with the studs instead of like cleanly with his boot. It just seemed like he mishit it. Um, it to be fair to him, it was like pouring rain in Manchester in this game. And I think like when you're doing your run up for a penalty and you're worried about slipping, I'm sure that throws you off. So it, it was a really poor penalty attempt from him. Pretty unex- uncharacteristic. But Maybe the weather had a little bit of an effect. Um, and then uh, Liverpool almost scores right before the break. Ederson had a great save. The ball kind of almost spills out. Jota almost puts it in, but Ederson's able to collect. Second half, there are chances kind of right out of the gate for both teams again. And then Trent Alexander-Arnold goes down with an injury, I think like 15 minutes into the second half. And... Uh, that basically shut down the game for Liverpool, I think, and 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 shut down the game in general. I, the the only noticing I had late because the second half got pretty boring pretty quick after that injury to Trent was uh, connected to what you were talking about earlier. Pep had KDB playing so high up the field, and I feel like it it irritates it irritated you first, and now that I notice it. It really irritates me when I'm watching City do that. It's like you don't have to force him into the game by playing him really high up to pressure the back line. Like that, it just does. It doesn't make any sense. It like closes down space for City when they're attacking, and it it also it's like KDB is someone who has so much vision. Like Rodri shouldn't be the person distri- distributing the ball for you. It should be KDB back there getting. Like Rodri should be winning the ball and giving it to KDB. So, yeah, I, um, I have some. That I think that was my primary criticism of Pep. On the other side, my criticism of Klopp. I, Liverpool are definitely hurt with injuries right now, so it's tough. He's he's limited in his choices. But I thought this was the first time I've seen Klopp get kind of cute with it in a way that I thought hurt them. He played four attacking players in Jota, Firmino, Mane, and Salah. And Salah just did not get into the game at all in the first half, especially because I think he, he, he normally comes in off the right and Jota was also doing that. So they both were kind of crowding each other out and Jota was getting a lot more of the possession in the wide areas. And I just think Salah's a better player to do that. I would have played Nabi Keita or even Milner in the middle of the field. I would have had an additional midfielder and brought on Jota as a sub. Um, but I think... Yeah, Klopp just, he, I don't know. I, it just felt like getting a little bit cute with it um, in a way that I would expect Pep to do and not Klopp to do. Um, but, yeah, the really exciting first half of this game and a game that really petered out over time. Mm. What were you thinking about this game overall, Russ? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> first thing I want to note is that 
you know, the game does end in a draw, and it seems like both teams kind of end up being happy with that for different reasons, maybe in different ways. Um, like, it does kind of slow down in the second half, and, you know, that was a little less exciting, which is unfortunate as a, as a viewer, but I kind of, I can kind of understand, at least in the way I was imagining it for both of the coaches. But I do think, all told, Manchester City had more opportunities to win this game. Obviously, they have the PK, which they could have put away to put them up, but... Uh, there's also like a really nice header, um, this ball that's curled in from Cancelo uh, hmm. that Jesus gets it near post, but he hits it so hard and with such like vigor, but like just kind of maybe overdoes it even and misses wide. Um, but I definitely feel like they had more opportunities to win this game that they just weren't able to take advantage of. Um, again, I completely agree that KDB is playing too high. It makes very little sense to me. It's like taking somebody who's like this, you know, world explorer and deciding that they're going to be your horse and you tie him up in the front of the cart. It's like, why? <laughs> like, why would you do that? I'm sure he knows the way, but you don't have to make him pull the whole team that way. Like, put him in the driver's seat, put another dog up there, put another horse, whoever, let them pull, you know? It just, it, it, it makes him less, less often is he the guy dictating where play is going to develop, right? Yep. Not just, I mean, sure, when he has the ball, he does this mostly, as much as he can with it, but he, he can pick where we should even go to begin with, and I think he should be playing deeper for that sake. Ferran Torres completely disappears in this game. I don't know if he was a good pickup or not, but he, he, he's, I think I, he sucks. <laughs> I, believe, I believe he was at Sevilla, um, mm-hmm. I, I, maybe at Valencia, I remember watching some highlights of him because I don't really watch a whole lot of La Liga. And I think he, um, when he was playing there, he was playing, he is a winger. He played as a winger for them, but he almost played as a winger in the same way that kind of like Werner played as a, as a winger at Red Bull, mm. where he's a lot higher up the pitch. He's not carrying the ball up. He's more the person who's like, Mm-hmm. going to make the final run, like cutting run in. Right. And he was really effective at doing that. But I think in Pep's system, the wingers are expected to carry the ball up the field a little bit more. And yeah, I, yeah. He had he, a really hard time getting into this game. For he sure. An he odd seemed, fit. He seems an odd fit. I think that's what I really mean to say. I don't think he sucks, sucks. I just think like he doesn't add anything that I think Pep is looking for and or what he does, what he does really well, isn't really what they need, you know. Um, and so that was that was one thing I noticed. And I also feel like Sterling is always getting caught with like a shot that's like right at the keeper, or like a crossover that he doesn't quite get. Like he keeps getting in these situations where he just can't finish. Um, I don't know how many goals he has this season, but like I really feel like he's also kind of struggling. Um, so I mean, I, I have I, I I'm pretty pretty down about City in general I had a different opinion of the Liverpool front four I actually thought it was really smart I thought it was a good idea I thought hey you know you probably brought on a fourth attacker because you wanted to have somebody to cycle in with the other three Uh, but now you've got injuries and you're trying to figure out who should play put all of your best players in the field Um, and I don't know that it works perfectly but I like I like the simplicity of it in a way. I thought I liked that he was just like, well, you know what, we're gonna play with all four of them. And I also thought that there was some good combination play in general. I mean, I'm not sure that it came from playing the four the way he did or anything in particular, because it's kind of a small sample size. But 
I honestly thought that some of the combination play was great, and I liked actually to see them in one sense too because I could see how each of them plays their own slightly different version of the game. You could see the way all of the, the differences, even though they can kind of interchange, and that was kind of pretty to me to watch, and I thought it was effective. I mean, I thought that they did a good job up to front. I thought they were dangerous. I thought they created some good combination play. Um, you know, I, I when you mentioned Salah kind of not showing up as much, I, I started to think about it, and I was like, yeah, actually, that does kind of sound about right, but, you know, I didn't notice when it was happening, and I kind of liked, I liked that idea of like, you know what? If we're if if I don't have another defender, I'll just play a forward instead. You know, like I, like I I like that. Um, but yeah, you know, I think once Trent comes out of this game, it really that's, it shut down. It shut down. Putting James Milner in as your right defender is, I think, <laughs> not necessarily like an auspicious moment uh, for the end of this game. You know, like uh, let's let's chill out. Yeah. On, on that note, I'm wondering what. What is going to be the Liverpool back for? Hundred percent. When they come back from the international break, because I believe this morning it was announced that Joe Gomez has suffered an injury. I think in training for England. Yes, international duty. Yeah. I I these inter- everyone is like complaining about this, so it's not like this is a fresh take. But I I just think like having a really condensed season and then adding in these international friendlies. I, like, I don't understand the point at all. Nathan Ake also got hurt today. It's like key players at big clubs are going to get hurt in these games yeah. because there's so many games that players are having to play all at once. And it's like, yeah, Liverpool is now down Van Dyke. They're down Joe Gomez. They're down jo- Joel Matip, I believe, too. And then they're also down Trent. So um, it's, it's insane. Yeah, it's insane. It, I think it's really going to going to stretch the resources that they have and their bench. And we were talking about managers who add value. Klopp adds value, but at a certain point, you don't have players. You, know? <laughs> you yeah. don't have players. Right. I mean, there's only so much you can polish when you don't have anything to polish. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> what's your job then, you know? Um, yeah, I think it's going to be I, – I don't know that there's a much – like I was looking at who they had on the bench, for example, this game – and you know what they had on the field and like I don't know if creativity is going to be the tool that solves this problem for you you know like I think yeah. you're just going to have to play some younger guys maybe maybe just play a little more conservative you know maybe change the style a little bit to compensate for the fact that you're going to be playing with a little bit of uh you know some vulnerabilities and just just kind of and just kind of pray. I mean, I I don't know that you can like you know oh let's play like three in the back or do something wacky like I I, I don't know that that's going to solve any problems. If anything, it's going to create more. So yeah, it's going to be really tough. And I, I it's crazy to me that we're playing international games. We're taking team players from a bunch of different teams all over the world, and then bringing them together to play in a friendly game when they're already a- overworked and we have a pandemic. That part I was to me. Say- is there something else going on around the world <laughs> that could maybe, like, some global health crisis, like, generational plague, or, you know, yeah. some, some little thing, maybe? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's crazy to me. Asinine. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, listener, that's going to wrap up our talk for the games from this week, but we are going to close out the show with a little prediction, so stick around for that. Thank you.
Okay, welcome back, listener. We are doing predictions for match week nine, which if you have your calendar out, is not this coming weekend, but it's the following. We've got international duty this weekend, so no Premier League games. Um, but we want to do our predictions because we're not going to talk uh, Premier League in our normal way in between now and then, and we still want to uh, break out the crystal ball, uh, get a little Nostradamus on your ass. So, <laughs> it was um, getting a little dusty. You need to get that like brushed <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Rod, I, I think let's let's kick it off with guaranteed three points. Looking at the games that are coming up, where do you see the, the automatic win happening here? Uh, you know... Chelsea, Newcastle. I think Mm. this would be a great game for Chelsea to come out and absolutely dominate Newcastle and seal the deal on the last game they just had. Um, Granted, they just played Sheffield. Bottom, like I said, stuck to the bottom of the table. Newcastle, I think, should be their next prey. That's an easy three points. And hopefully they come out with fireworks, win it handily, and can move with that momentum. I see no reason to doubt that whatsoever. Um, I think... The game where I'm seeing those points coming for sure is Everton-Fulham. This is a get-right game for Everton. I think that this is a game where Richarlison is going to be back. He's back, they'll, yeah. They'll be back up to full strength. And I think that they're like they, there's been – I called them a fraud today. They're really going to have to reflect on that over the next 10 days, getting ready for this game. Um, and I think this is – yeah, I think this is a game where they sort of reset expectations and – yeah, Fulham is just not very good. They don't really have the quality, especially in defense, to deal with Calvert-Lewin. So, um, yeah, Everton, I think they'll win big in that game, get people back on the horse. Um, what What about your, uh, your upset? Where are you seeing maybe an underdog outperform expectations? This is a great question. It's so hard, I feel like, nowadays to look at this and know who's supposed to be an underdog. Things are so topsy-turvy. Like, you know, we used to be like, well, you got your top six, you've got some mid-table, and then you've got the bottom. And yeah. this season, you know, Aston Villa's going off. Uh, Brighton was like, uh, like, looked like it might be something special and then dropped off. And Wolves, you know, of last year is n- is not the Wolves of this year. So it's, it's a tough look. Um, kind of trying to look for a game that feels at least like an underdog win to me. Um, I low-key think that Burnley could beat Crystal Palace. <laughs> I, 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 I like really think Crystal Palace struggles sometimes. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't really know how they pulled out so many goals this week uh, against, against Leeds. Um, but, you know, Eze had a great game. I give him that. But, you know, my boy Wood up top for Burnley needs to score some goals because my fantasy team is bleeding uh, <laughs> up top. Uh, but this might be the game he could do it. I think he's 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 due. He's due. That's fair. I think that's a good call. I that that would have been my pick. My other one that I was eyeing is actually Sheffield United West Ham. Me too. I think West West Ham is really good, but I think West Ham struggles playing against the low block. They're not really a super creative team. They're much better on the counter. They're much better like releasing their target man when they draw teams into the game. And Very Sheffield is generally pretty good at not doing that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like Sheffield to to steal this game late uh, with a yeah, an Ollie McBurney had a goal. I'm feeling one <laughs> threw his whole to, body in there, baby. <laughs> to Sheffield. Um, 
What about match of the week? There are a few oh. good games um, yes. looking at this table, but what, what, what are you thinking? What's the game you're feeling the most excited to watch? Uh, you know, uh, it is a really tough choice. There are a few here that could be good. I, I'm going to go ahead and say Tottenham Manchester City. Uh, I think I say this in part because I want to see Mourinho try to, like, take out his, I don't even know if it's closeted hatred of Pep Guardiola out on the field. And I want to see how Pep prepares for this game. Like, he has been, in my mind, struggling. And some part of me needs, like, he needs to, like, take a break. He needs to, like, go get hammered or something. Like, go, go get, like, just let his mind go for a little bit. Let the boys play. Um, yeah. And this could be a nice turning point, honestly. If they were to come out and really crush Tottenham, I think that would be really cool. I don't think that that's necessarily likely. Uh, and if he gets his ass handed to him by Tottenham, oof. I don't, I don't know. A part of me feels like that might start to send a bigger message than some of these, like, you know, late game ties or, like, kind of yeah. weak performances. Like, getting smacked around by Tottenham, I think, would be a big message. So I think that's going to be an interesting game. I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, if there's fireworks and if so for who and what that means for the other guy. I know it's early in the season, but I kind of feel like this is a sort of game that could decide the way that this year goes. I'm feeling like Tottenham, increasingly I'm feeling like Tottenham is my pick to win the title this year. And if they win this game, I think it really demonstrates that they can, they, they have the, the juice to do it. Whereas on the other side, I think if City wins this game, it really flips the narrative of their season quite a bit. It's like, we just drew against Liverpool, we beat Tottenham, like we're on the up and we're climbing the table. And I think that'll really change the vibe for them and, and, they go back into the conversation of being a contender. I'm going to say that my game is actually Leeds Arsenal. That's the game of the week for me. Mm-hmm. One, because I'm an Arsenal supporter and we desperately need to win. Yes. But two, you and I were talking about this not on the pod. I think this is a pretty big game for Arteta. I think if he loses this game badly against Leeds... That's two performances in a. That would be two performances in a row against not very good teams. Where, yeah, some mismanagement. I can see mismanagement getting in the way here. Leeds is a beatable team, and Arsenal, I think, should be able to beat them. Based on what we just saw this past weekend, I don't have any confidence that that's going to happen. But um, I think this is a really big game for Arsenal, and it's a big game for Leeds too. Leeds has been s- slipping in the table, and I I think Bielsa will want to really flex and flex against a bigger club. So yeah, I, that, I think it'll be a, a very interesting game to watch. I, I completely agree. I think it's, it, it definitely feels like a must win for Arteta if he wants to keep the goodwill train a humming. Mm. Um, a couple honorable mentions I want to point out just for funsies. Yeah. One, I want to see West Brom beat Manchester United <laughs> really bad. <laughs> I just want to see West Brom like pocket all of the frustration from this week and the chances they had, and I want to see them pop something against against Manchester United. Um, I, I if if there were if there are some really good odds in that game, I might put put down a dollar or two for my boys, uh, <laughs> West it. Brom. And the second honorable mention, uh, which is obviously going to be an exciting game in some sense, mm-hmm. is Leicester Liverpool. It's a little bit less exciting given the injuries at Liverpool, but it's kind of like watching like the hurt lion try to take down like the younger lion. It's like, 
I mean, he's hurt, but like he's still the big he's lion. OG. He's yeah, the OG. he's the OG lion. Like, can he still do it? You know. So, I mean, I, that, I think for that reason alone, I'm curious to see what Klopp will do in that game. And of course, Vardy is healthy at least for the moment. So it'll be interesting to see how he tries to handle that situation um, with you know a pretty a pretty solid Leicester team at the moment. I think as we get further into the season and further into doing the pod, we just have more and more narratives about all these teams. And, <laughs> yeah. like, I get so excited about all these games. So uh, I know. L- listener, I hope we're building some of that excitement for you as well. And, yeah, uh, we always appreciate you tuning in and giving us the time every week. Um, and look forward to, uh, yeah, catching these games and um, – Catching a little bit of the international games happening over the break, even though they shouldn't be. Yeah, happening at all. Um, It is a pleasure to talk to you, as always, Rodrigo. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and look forward to talking to you soon. Yes, the pleasure is all mine, Effie. The pleasure is all mine. Uh, Let's go, West Brom. Get prepared. You don't have the international duty, I'm sure. Get fired up. Manchester United's ready for you, but they're not. All right, talk to you soon. 